from St. Paul's epistle to the Corinthians, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. In the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Well, good morning. A little quiz for you today. If you were to ask 100 people, just walking on the street, right, or over at Wawa, getting a sub, or over at Publix, checking out for the uh, weekly uh, grocery list, and you were to ask somebody, hey, what's the central mark, the central act of Jesus, the most important thing he ever did, what do you think people would say? Probably lots of different things, but they'd probably start with, you know, Christmas, right? Everybody loves Christmas. They might say Christmas is the most important thing he ever did. They might say that Jesus' teaching and his preaching and his casting out demons, that's the most important thing he ever did. If you're a more Protestant variety, you might say that his crucifixion was the most important thing he ever did. But all three of those, and, and everything in between, all of those are good things, but they're not the ultimate thing. The ultimate act the most important thing that Jesus Christ ever did in his ministry on earth, listen, was to be resurrected from the dead, period. Because if Jesus Christ is not raised, his birth doesn't really matter. I mean, it's a good story, wise men and all that stuff, and he's still got Christmas presents maybe. But if Christ is not resurrected from the dead, his, his birth doesn't really matter. His teaching, he might be a nice guy, but eh, the world's full of nice guys. His crucifixion, eh, maybe a mis, uh, uh, a, another illustration of Roman cruelty. But friends, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then Jesus doesn't matter. And in fact, I'm not just trying to be rough here. Paul says this very thing today. He says in, in verse 17, he says, uh, if Christ has not been raised, then your faith, is futile, and you are still in your sins. So, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is the central act of the Christian faith. If it happened, it changes everything. If it didn't happen, then you're all wasting your time, and as Paul says later on, we're all a bunch of suckers. So today I want to look at this question of the resurrection in two points. Um, did he rise from the dead? How do you know? And then secondly, so what? What does it mean for you? I want to look at the historicity of the resurrection. Did it really happen? And secondly, what does that mean for you and for me? So the first thing I want to look at, look at is, did the resurrection, did Jesus Christ really rise from the dead? Man, it is the most important historical event ever. It is the most important thing that's ever occurred, if it did. Books have been written on this topic, and I'll submit to you the best one, I think, is a book called The Resurrection of the Son of God by Bishop N.T. Wright. It's a big, thick book, uh, but it's not a hard read, and if you're curious about this, I would commend that to you. I met N.T. Wright, Bishop Wright, at the Union League in New York City once. He was lecturing, and he's a fantastic guy, very British, but a good guy. Uh, I didn't mean that negatively, actually. That didn't sound right. Anyway, can you take that out of the tape, guys? Uh, but here's the question. Did it really happen? Did it really happen? Well, let me just stop and just make an obvious observation. That like all historical claims, the resurrection is based on the testimony of the people that tell the story. Let me say that again. Like all history, 
The resurrection is based on the testimony of the people who were there. If you're going to look at something historical, you want to study the Normandy invasions, or you want to, the Declaration of Independence, or the Battle of Gettysburg, you got to find people who were there and ask them, or read about it, what happened. So whether or not Christ is raised from the dead is based upon the testimony of the people who were there and their, listen, and their credibility. And I'm going to make this, Paul makes this very point a, a few verses before. Paul says this in chapter 15, verse 4. He says, Jesus was raised from the dead on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, which means as scripture had predicted. And then Jesus appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then he appeared to the twelve. Listen to this. Then Jesus appeared, raised from the dead, to more than 500 people at one time, most of whom are still alive. Now, why is he saying all this? Well, what Peter's doing is he, Paul rather, who's a lawyer, by the way, he's building his case. He's saying, look, this idea of a resurrection from the dead is a crazy idea. Granted, dead people typically stay dead, right? Then and now. What Paul's saying is he's laying out the eyewitness testimony of the case. Peter, the apostles, the 12, and then 500 people all at once. Peter sa Paul says, they're still alive. Don't take my word for it. Go ask them. The historicity of the resurrection is based upon the credibility of those who observed it. And if you were to go and ask those people who claim to have seen Christ alive, what would they say? Well, people actually did ask him, and what they said unanimously is that he was alive, that they saw this Jesus. He looked a little bit different than before, yes. He could do things that we can't do, like he can walk through physical objects, but he's not a ghost because he can also eat, and you can touch him. So it's some sort of pre-fallen state of humanity, our true state, I would submit to you. Get to that in a second. But look, if you're, if you're going to make this stuff up in a conspiracy, you're going to need a lot of people. You might get a few people with an active imagination or maybe a little, too much, uh, a little too much eggnog the night before, right? And Maybe you saw something that wasn't really there. But you're not going to get 500 people all at once to see something. There's no such thing as a mass hallucination with that many people. And the thing you have to know about these early eyewitnesses is that when Christ was crucified, they scattered. Remember, when Jesus went into Jerusalem to be the Messiah, they thought he was the new king, and they bet their hopes on him liberating the Jews from the Romans. But then Christ is crucified. Pilate puts up, there's your king, right, that, the titulus above the cross, and they ran. They scattered. Why? Well, because Rightly, that all of his followers knew that if Jesus had been arrested and crucified and executed, they would be next as, as co-conspirators in a coup against the Roman Empire. My point is, these, if you read in Scripture, the first thing the early Christians did is they ran away. And they hid to save their own lives. They thought, man, we've bet on the wrong horse. Game over. But something changed. Something weird happened. <laughs> All of a sudden, these first Christians, after two days of hiding, on the, after Easter Sunday, they're 
out of nowhere, these, these Christians are running around telling everybody about this Jesus guy that they'd seen resurrected from the dead. And they're going around and saying, yeah, he was dead, but now he's alive, which is actually an astounding thing. Nobody expected Christ to be resurrected. Dead people stay dead, right? But these early witnesses, these first Christians stuck to their story. No matter, and what happened? Well, they were all given talk show time, right? They wrote books. No. These early Christians were arrested. They were tortured. They were crucified. They were eviscerated. They were lit on fire, whole families. The Romans were good at two things, right? Building stuff and killing people. But they stuck to their story. Rather than retract, they said, I've seen him and he's alive. And if you ask them what changed them, what changed them from being a cowardly group of people hiding for their lives to people that were willing to die for the very same claim, they would say to you, look, man, he was dead, but I've seen him and he's been raised. Look, if you're a historian and you're investigating a claim that all of the eyewitnesses saw the same thing, and all of the eyewitnesses have absolutely nothing to gain by lying. And in fact, all of the eyewitnesses have everything to lose by telling their story that Jesus was raised from the dead. If you're going to deny what those people said occurred, you've got to come up with a better explanation. And there is none. You know why? People won't die for a lie. Would you? I wouldn't. If you look at the facts, if you look at the evidence, the testimony, the eyewitness testimony, everybody said, he's alive and I'm willing to go to the stake to defend it. And that changes everything. If that's true, and I submit to you historically that it is, that changes everything. Incidentally, there's a guy, his name is Josephus. He wrote a book called The Antiquities of the Jews. He was a Jewish historian writing at this period of time. Josephus, in his book, says that Christ had been raised from the dead. If that's true, and I believe that it is, what does that mean for you? Well, the first thing it means, if the resurrection is true, friends, the first thing it means is that death is not the end. It means that death is not the end. Now, lots of people believe in an afterlife of some sort, you know, uh, there's all sorts of books written about, you know, heaven is for real and all this stuff. Well, okay, maybe, but this idea of a disembodied spirit where you're, you die and you float up into the clouds and you, you know, this, your soul is freed from the prison of your body and now you're floating around with your grandparents and all your dead relatives and your goldfish who died when you were six years old, right? That's not what the Bible teaches, actually. Because imagine, because what the Bible says, what Jesus says, is that the heaven is real and it's physical. Heaven is not floating on a cloud playing harps all day long. Heaven is real and it is physical. If you read, if you read the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, St. John, has visions of, he of heaven. It's hard to read because it's apocalyptic literature, but what he says repeatedly is that heaven is a physical place. He describes it as a city, not harps and clouds, no, but a physical place. And Jesus says something astounding, that when he returns, when he returns, the dead shall be resurrected, 
just like he was, with new physical bodies that don't get old and don't die, and that we will once again inhabit a restored heaven, restored Eden, a real physical place. This is what Jesus tells us. And those who have leaned on Jesus to save them, to pay for their sins, they will have a place in this new restored heaven. And those who have said, thanks, Jesus, no thanks, I've got this one, who have chosen to live eternity without God in the emptiness and darkness of hell, Jesus will honor their request. Friends, if the resurrection is true, and I submit to you today that it is, that changes. It changes everything. Because it means that no matter what the world throws at you, no matter what happens to you, no matter the anger or the hurt or the betrayal or the resentment, no matter the worries you have and the fears you have, you know what? It's all going to be okay. I want you to think about something right now. The resurrection is not just about the end times, friends. The resurrection should radically change how you live your life now. I want you to think of something right now that's just chewing on you. You've all got stuff. I do. I want you to think of something right now that's bugging you. Maybe it's a health issue with someone that you love, or it's a relationship problem, or it's something to do with the kids, or it's financial, or it's probably one of those, right? I want you to stop and, and, and consider those, that thing that's bothering you right now. What if, what if the worries you have right now, what if they really don't matter? I mean, they do matter. They, I'm not denying that you're, they're causing you suffering, and I'm not denying they're causing me suffering. I have worries too. But at the end of the day, if I really stop and think about it, does it really matter ultimately? And the answer is no. Not if you see life through the lens of the resurrection. I mean, imagine, imagine if you could live your life from the perspective of the big picture of eternity. If you could live your life not worried about what's going to happen today, but knowing the end game is already decided, and knowing that this world is nasty, brutish, and short, this life, but that God has still saved us and promised us something better. Let me ask you this. How would you live differently? It's an honest question. It's a real question. How would you live differently now, knowing what will happen when Christ returns. Just the other day, this came up in my own heart. I was out with some friends over at the Orchid Island Brewery having a beer. Great place, by the way. And uh, last Thursday, I had to go into the uh, endoscopy center here for an upper GI, where they, put a, they knock you out cold, they put a camera down your throat to sort of check out your, your esophagus and all that stuff. Not a pleasant experience, but hey. Um, and I was telling these guys that I had to go through that, and uh, one of my buddies said, well, I know what your problem is. I said, what? He says, the problem is you just work too hard. And I said, come on, man, I don't work too hard. That's, what are you, crazy? Come on, work too hard. And I kind of didn't think about it a whole lot until I got home. I told my wife that. And she said, well, you know, you did go in for an endoscopy at 6 a.m. They knocked you out cold, and you were at the office by 10. <laughs> so maybe... Maybe I need to rethink my priorities. Maybe I need to stop and ask myself the question of the things that I'm doing, really the things that God is having me do. Am I just working too hard, spending my priorities in the wrong spots? I mean, let me put it to you like this. I have, I have had the privilege 
to be at the bedside of many people as they were dying. I have had the privilege of being with many people on the, their final days on this earth. Friends, I will tell you something. No one has ever said to me, ever, you know, Father, I wish I'd made more money. <laughs> you know, I wish I had a bigger house. I wish I'd spent more time at the office. No one has ever said that to me, ever. What they have said to me, though, is I, I wish I'd loved people more. I wish I'd taken my prayer life more seriously. I wish I'd taken my kids to church every Sunday like I'm supposed to. I wish I'd been more faithful with the gifts that God has entrusted me with. Don't you see? Friends, don't you? The resurrection not only gives us a hope for the future, it radically reorients the priorities of our now. It radically reorganizes the priorities that we place importance on now. Let me just challenge you today. How might you live differently? How might you really live differently from the perspective of eternity? Think about that. Do you spend your time on what really matters? Because most of the things we spend our time in, they really don't. Let me show you what I mean. In our gospel today, we read, read the Beatitudes, right? Jesus says, blessed are the poor, blessed are the meek, blessed are the humble. Uh, that word blessed is the, word, the Greek word makarios. And it means joy, and it means happiness, and it means peace. Makarios is the state of mind that you seek, and so do I. Makarios is the fulfillment that you have from a life that is well lived. Well, most people read the Beatitudes as sort of this ancient New Eastern Green New Deal, right? That we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna bring in this new utopian society. Nonsense. Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger, for they will be satisfied. Do you know when? When the kingdom returns, when the dead are raised, when you and I, friends, live in a real physical heaven. When Christ returns, he says, I will put all things to rights. I will restore my people to their proper place. And if that's true, if that's true, then anything this world throws at you in the whole scheme of things, it really doesn't matter. The only reason the world stresses you out is because you let it. The only reason the world stresses you is because you have lost, and I do this too, taken my eye off the ball, forgotten that the end game is already decided. We are, as our final hymn today, going to sing one of my favorites, and I'm going to read you the first verse of our final hymn. It summarizes the entire sermon. The strife is over. This is at our death and Christ's return. The strife is over, the battle done. The victory of life is won. The song of triumph has begun. Alleluia. That we pray. Father, we thank you for your son who came to us, who died for us, who was resurrected from the dead and who will return with power and glory to restore us to Eden. Help us to never lose sight of this hope, this truth, to see the struggles of our present worries through the lens of eternal glory that you promise to all those who love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to our Trinity Episcopal Church podcast. 
To find out more about the work God is doing through Trinity, visit us online at trinityvero.org and follow us on Facebook.